extensively this morning in the book of Daniel as we discuss the book of Revelation because many of the symbols found in the book of Revelation are first found in the book of Daniel and many of the subjects. And this morning I'm going to be reading out of Daniel 7 beginning in verse number 19. It was a couple of years back that Pastor Richard Romero was here. He did a revival that focused uh, completely on the subject of Bible prophecy. If you'll remember, while you're turning there, one other quick announcement. Um, tomorrow night, we are when we have the girls staying homes. We're also going to have some staying at the Highlands dorms, as we always do. And if you are a single a woman and you're available to help be a monitor, kind of a chaperone there to help out, uh, then talk to Nita after the service. Uh, if also here at the church, the guys stay here, and I need some single men or uh, even married men, if you'd like, to spend the night here tomorrow night to help supervise that. Talk to me after the service. Amen. Daniel 7. As I was saying, Pastor Richard Romero was doing this revival focusing on prophecy. And he made a very poignant comment. He said that prophecy... In the Bible is veiled. That's why it seems mysterious. That's why people over the centuries have read the prophecies and they scratch their heads and wonder what does it mean and how will these prophecies be fulfilled. But he made this comment. He said it's like an object that's been veiled and a veil is draped over the object. From a distance, all you see is the veil. But as you approach the object, the closer you get, the more you begin to discern what is beneath the veil. You can see through the material, you see the shape, and the closer you get, the more obvious it becomes what is beneath the veil until you're right on top of it, and you can pretty much discern what is beneath the veil. You pull the veil and it's revealed. He says Bible prophecy is very much that way. That from the beginning, many of these prophecies were veiled and seemed obscured. We're going to read some prophecies this morning in the book of Daniel that were written five centuries before Christ. And when they were written back then, uh, they were obscure. And they remained obscure for millennia. But now, they're coming into clear focus. What we're going to read is a very clear prophecy about an individual who is known in the scriptures as Antichrist. And what we're going to read about in this prophecy is a prophecy regarding a brief period of time when this man, Antichrist, is given dominion over a group of people who are called saints. And as we talked about in Sunday school, these saints are, in fact, holy people. It's what the word means. And these are individuals who are in his time, during this brief span of time, who are worshipers of God, followers of the Messiah of Israel. And he's going to be given dominion over them during this time. But this is a very brief time in history called the Great Tribulation. It will last seven years. It's in the future. And in reality, his complete dominion really only lasts half of that time, about 42 months. And make no mistake about it, this will be the only time in history when this will be so. When this one, control of Satan, will be given dominion over the saints of God. Now, I mention that because the text we read, though it's about that future time, it does reveal to us the strategy of the spirit of Antichrist against the saints of God, the redeemed. The man Antichrist will not be revealed according to the scriptures until the Holy Spirit and the bride of Christ are removed. Until the Holy Spirit and the Bride of Christ leave this earth. But until that time, the spirit of Antichrist 
The Bible says is already loosed into the world, and this has been so since the beginning. John wrote in 1 John 4, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And so he's saying that though the man Antichrist will not be revealed until future time, already loosed in the world is the spirit of Antichrist. And we can discern the strategy of the spirit of Antichrist from this text that will not come into full manifestation until the seven-year tribulation. The big difference between now and that time is that in that time, Antichrist will be given dominion over the people of God for a time. But even though the strategy is the same now, the spirit of Antichrist cannot prevail over the saints now. That in fact we are the ones with the dominion. But the strategy is still at play. Daniel 7 verse number 19. Picking up this prophecy out of the book of Daniel. It says this. That I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints." And prevailing against them until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute or wear down the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law, and the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, or three and a half years. But the court shall be preceded, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominations shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Father, we pray that you would illuminate your word, that this prophecy God given of old would shed light by the grace of God upon the hour that we live in right now, that we would discern and understand so that we may overcome the spirit of Antichrist loosed in our own generation. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The strategy against the saints is this clearly stated. And that is to wear them down. To wear them down. The strategy to wear them down and to wear them out. In the text, in verse 25, it says they shall persecute. It says in the New King James. The Old King James says wear out. Because that's what the word means. It's actually the only time uh, that this particular word appears in the Old Testament. This Hebrew word. And it's exactly what the word means to wear out like the wearing out of a garment or the wearing out of anything that was once whole, but because of use is just simply worn out. And this is the strategy to wear out the saints, the people of God, the holy people of the Most High God. And this is the only time this word is used in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, and it means to wear out with a constant and unrelenting effort. And this is the imagery it's the image of a workman taking what we would call fine grit sandpaper and taking an object like a block of wood 
and then very patiently beginning to rub with that fine grit sandpaper. And you work it and work it and all the sawdust begins to come up and you keep blowing up but you keep right on rubbing. And the whole idea is to use that process to make that wood block into something useful. You sand it and sand it until you create an indentation. You create a hole. And then you can use it for something like a bowl or a, a, a larger surface into some kind of a serving tray. And that's the idea. Somebody taking fine grit sandpaper and just going to work and working it and working it because he wants to use it for something. He wants to put things in it, put things on it that are going to stay in place. And so he's working it. This is what this strategy is to wear down the saints of God. This constant and relenting, unrelenting effort to wear down the saints of God. And he makes this indentation because he wants to put something there. Certain things, Christian, that if are allowed to remain will cause long-term damage to our lives. And this is the point. This is the point of the strategy. To wear down and to wear down and to wear down and to wear down. So that the saints of God wear down and wear out and they allow what he deposits to remain. So that it has its final poisoning effect. So think of this imagery of him relentlessly without ever giving up day and night wear you down wear you down wear you down because he's creating an impression so that he can deposit something so that that thing can poison you let's talk about the things that the enemy of our souls wants to deposit as he wears you down day after day he wears you down mentally. He wears you down emotionally. He wears you down spiritually, even physically, day after day, like the guy with a sandpaper. You know, one or two strokes with sandpaper is no big deal, especially if it's fine grit. But if it's unrelenting, if it never stops, eventually it begins to have its work. It begins to leave its mark. You see, the enemy is doing exactly that against the people of God now. As we approach that time in history where the man Antichrist is going to be fully manifest, the spirit of Antichrist in our world is ratcheting up the flame, is increasing its intensity, and so it is this strategy against the saints of God to wear you down. This unrelenting stroke again and again and again and again to make an indentation, to create a hole, as it were, so that he can deposit the poison and you're too worn out to do anything about it until it kills you. One of the things that he wants to deposit into our lives by wearing us down is bitterness and unforgiveness. Because we all have to deal with the inevitable slights and the offenses of this life. You live in a world full of people, human beings. You have a family full of people, human beings. You work on jobs with human beings. In church, and even in church, you deal with human beings. And if you deal with human beings long enough in close enough proximity, you mark it down. The day will come when you're going to be slighted. The day's going to come when you're going to be offended. Because human beings are not perfect. And you're going to one day find reason to feel hurt or offended. And as you're being worn down and worn down and worn down, after a while, we start thinking, you know what, I'm tired. I put up with this for so long, and I'm just getting worn down. You ever feel like that? You've dealt with it in the past. You've forgiven it in the past. I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. I'm sorry, I forgive, I forget. I'm sorry, I forget, I forget, I'm sorry. You know, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. 
I'm worn out. I can't deal with this anymore. That's what he's after. In the past, we're, we deflect it, we forgive, we, we do the right thing. But you know what? In time, that hole starts getting deep. We start getting tired. And we say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And we even use the words, I'm getting worn out. I'm getting worn down. And the hole is made and it just sits in there and begins to seep into the fabric of our hearts. Another thing he wants to deposit into our lives as he wears us down is lust and temptation. Because we understand that lust and temptation is part of this life. It's part of having a flesh nature. It's part of dealing with a real devil. And our world is so perverse. But you know what? You get worn down. And we say, you know what? I try to fight it off, but I'm just getting worn down. I try to deal with it. I rebuke it. I repent. I rebuke. I pray. I I repent. I'm just getting worn down. And you know what begins to happen? When that poison begins to seep down into the fabric of our hearts, we begin to think things like, well, you know, what's so bad about it anyway? I mean, God's expectations for me are just, they're just too unrealistic. Why? Because we're getting worn down. Because the indentation is getting deeper and the poison settles in the bottom and begins to steep in. See, that's the strategy. Wear them down. Wear them down. Wear them down. Day after day after day, like that fine grit sandpaper, One stroke, two a day is not that big a deal, but constantly you get worn down. You begin to tell yourself, you know, what's what's the big deal? I know what the Bible says, but it just seems impossible. It just seems so unrealistic. And what happens is that demon of lust and perversion finds a home. Because we get worn down. Another thing that the enemy will deposit into a person's life when he or she has been worn down is pride. And pride always becomes rebellion. Pride unchecked will always become rebellion. We get worn out. I've been more than gracious with the faults and incompetence of these people. And the arrogance to think that they know better than me. I've bitten my tongue time and time again when I could have straightened them out. Well, you know what? I'm done. I'm not holding back anymore. And I've got better places to be. Because we're worn out. And pride is like an acid that if allowed to stay, is going to burn its way all the way through your heart. One of the more common deposits is discouragement. We lose hope. The whispers of hell that never seem to stop. Why bother? You can't do it anymore. You know you're going to fail anyway. What's the point? Why even try? You're a loser and you know it. And hopelessness lays a hold of your mind. For others, it's a crippling sense of fear. You know, fear is normal. God gave us the ability to fear. You need to fear some things. We need to teach our children to fear some things. That's why, you know, we don't want them running out into the street. We don't want them touching hot stoves. Fear is not a bad thing when it's in its proper use. But fear 
improperly applied is crippling. When we fear what might happen, not just taking reasonable precaution, but I'm talking about a fear of the future that is paralyzing. A fear of the future that causes you to become immobilized so that you don't go forward. And many times, it's because of this unrelenting day after day after day after day. <sighs> Pouring a little bit more. See, this is the strategy of the spirit of Antichrist against the saints of God to wear down with this fine grit sandpaper day after day after month after year after decade. Why is it that you see people who serve God, some of them for decades, and it looks like it's all good and then they blow up? Whatever happened to so-and-so? I don't know. That's what happened. They got worn down. They got worn out. See, we're talking about this daily wearing down that comes from the patient stroke of a patient enemy. This fine grit sandpaper rubbing and rubbing. And it's not the single stroke that makes the difference. It's the unrelenting day after day after day. Let me tell you something about your enemy. He's patient. He thinks the long game. He's patient. He realizes one or two strokes are not going to make that much difference. But months and years start to make a difference. Decades start to make a difference. He's patient. He's been at this a long time. Let me tell you something about the devil. He doesn't have a lot of new strategies. You know why? Because the old ones work just fine. They're tested. They're tried and true. It's the same old, same old. He'll even tell you what they are and then he'll do it and still prevail. God puts it in the word of God. Tells us exactly what the strategies of the devil are. And they still work. Because he's patient. You know, there are certain symptoms of being worn down by the enemy. You know, if somebody's rubbing on you with a piece of sandpaper, you're going to experience certain symptoms. One of them is this sense of friction. Another is this, this heat and irritation. Sound familiar? You become irritable. You become impatient. You don't even know why. You start blaming the environment. People, you start blaming everybody around you. That's what it is. I can't take this anymore. I can't take these people anymore. These people are driving me nuts. We start blaming everything and everyone when really all those circumstances are are the glove on the hand of the one who's tormenting you. And you attack the glove because he just keeps it up. See, there are symptoms, the friction, the heat, the irritation, this sense of losing ground, of lost momentum, until the point is we don't even care about those things anymore. As a matter of fact, you're getting irritated hearing me talk about it. <laughs> day after day after night after week after month after year. That's the strategy. Because he can't overcome you in a frontal assault. He doesn't have the firepower. But he'll wear you down. (sighs) 
a little more bitterness, a little more lust, a little more impatience, pride, rebellion, discouragement. One or two strokes, we can deal with that. But day after day after day. You see, this strategy is central to the enemy's assault against a superior force. The devil's not dumb. He knows face-to-face with any Christian, he's outgunned. Not because of me or you, but because of the fact that we're Christians, that Christ is Lord, and in his name, we exercise his authority. He said, all authority has been given to me, heaven and earth, therefore go. That he sends us in his name by his authority. And he knows face to face with any believer, even somebody saved a matter of moments, if that Christian exercises his or her authority in Christ, that he can't stand. He's overcome. And so his strategy against a superior force is to wear you down. It's the only way that he can prevail by getting you to allow yourself to be poisoned. Just make the hole. Make the dent. After a while, you get tired of cleaning it out. You get tired of rebuking the devil. You get tired of knocking away his hand. You get tired and worn down. You see, sometimes... We forget who the victor is. Jesus Christ is the victor. He's not going to win. He did win. He won on the cross. He said it is finished. At that point, the devil thought he won. I mean, hell was having a dance at that particular point. They thought they'd prevail. Until they took his lifeless body from the tomb, wrapped it in strips of cloth, and put it in the, in the, in the tomb, moved the stone over the mouth of the tomb. And the Bible says Christ then went to Hades and led captivity captive. He went and confronted the devil, took the keys of death and hell and the grave, and prevailed, led captivity captive. Those souls who were in Abraham's bosom there in Hades, he led out of Hades, because now their sins had been paid for and led them into the presence of God. It was not a a victory for the devil. It was the ultimate victory for the Son of God. And on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Satan understood in, in no uncertain terms just how huge a catastrophe this was. How huge this is an unmitigated disaster had befallen all of his plans. Because the devil was smart enough to know this, that when Christ rose from the dead, from that moment forward in human history, every single human being born could simply repent and be saved. Every single one. Every last one of them. Not only could they repent and be saved, but they could then turn and become the devil's worst nightmare. Every single one of them, having repented and having been saved, could then become God's instrument to destroy everything that the devil had built up for centuries. He knew this was an unmitigated disaster. I'm done. It's over. Not only can I not stand against the Son of God... But now I'm going to be confronted by millions, perhaps billions, of those exercising his authority against me. I'm done. But to his shock and amazement, it didn't happen. Why? Because these people wouldn't repent. See the silence in here? It's just exactly the way it was in hell. They were just as stunned. 
but it's already done. All they have to do is repent. Surely they know they're sinners. Look, they're out there telling everybody. But they're not repenting. So those demons got right back out there. Hey, you don't want to listen to this. You want to listen to this. Hey, man, you want to get high. Let's go party. Hey, look at that girl. And the vast majority of human beings who could be saved right now will not get saved. Because though the price was paid and all that is left is to accept his salvation, the human race largely rejects salvation. And I'm not just talking about the billions of souls out there. I'm talking about the souls that are sitting right here. You're sitting here and you're not saved. And I'm talking to visitors. I'm talking about people that have heard me preach a thousand hours. And you're still going to hell. For whatever reason. devil's stunned by that I mean didn't God give them a brain but he'll take it and even those who do repent and do get saved eventually fall prey to his time worn tactics to neutralize and then overcome an overwhelming advantage against him Verse 21, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. How? By wearing them down. Unrelenting. It's fine grit sandpaper, stroke after stroke. Verse 25, and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. What does that mean? That's talking about the narrative of this world that daily blasphemes God. It's gotten to that place now where people, Christians, are now intimidated because they hear the hostile tone of the world. This blasphemous voice that comes from our world now against God and it wears us down and wears us down. And Man, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to work. I don't, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. point of this sermon is it's time to start doing the wearing down. I said it's time to start being the one who's doing the wearing down. Are you tired of being worn down? You know you're being worn down. And in fact, you can hear the scratch of the sandpaper day after day after day after day, week, years, decades at some point you're going to have to get tired of being worn down and, you, and the only way you can stop it is by becoming the one who does the wearing down greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world how many times do we have to hear it listen to what it says in Zechariah 1 then I raised my eyes and looked and there were four horns these seats of power and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. What's a craftsman? A craftsman is, is a man who's got skills. It means he knows what he's doing. He's not a novice. He's not just a guy with a hammer. You give a little boy a hammer, the whole world becomes a nail. Some never outgrow that. They hit everything. There are hammer marks all over everything they've been working on, including their body. But a craftsman is different. A craftsman has skills. A craftsman has a vision for what can be, and he begins to apply himself, and he works skillfully to accomplish, to build something that's going to last. That's a craftsman. And the text goes on to say, the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations 
that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. These horns have been having their way with the people of God. And Zechariah in a vision sees these four craftsmen coming and they got skilled. They got tools and they got skilled. And they're going right after the horns. And what are they going to do to those horns? They're going to take a really rough hasp and go... You know, in the days when bullfighting was really popular in Spain and Mexico, a lot of these matadors wanted to be the ones doing the killing. They didn't want to get killed. So at night, a lot of the times, their, their handlers would sneak into the pin where the bulls were held, and they would take a hasp, and they would start taking the point off those horns, just in case. That's what's being spoken about here. The craftsmen go to work. They start attacking the attacker. They start going after the horns, the seats of power, in an unrelenting fashion. They don't have a hacksaw. <laughs> they just wear them down. They're doing the wearing down. That's what this is talking about. So how do we flip the script how do we stop being the one being worn down by becoming the one who starts doing the wearing down to get the upper hand you have the superior firepower and even if the enemy tries to keep it up you have the superior firepower in the end he can't prevail and he knows it see the problem is that the enemy tries to get us to unilaterally disarm what does that mean it means He's trying to get you to put down your weapons. During the 1960s and 70s, there used to be these big protests in the streets. And uh, protesters would have banners. I remember the signs and the banners. And they would say, ban the bomb. Disarm. And there was actually a movement in the United States to unilaterally disarm. That means, never mind what Russia does. We need to do the right thing and just disarm. Never mind what the criminal does. I'm going to do the right thing. Tell our police force to get rid of their guns. That's just the right thing to do. That was a movement, the unilateral disarmament. Well, you know what? In 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed. All of a sudden, all these files from the KGB were made public. And wouldn't you know that a lot of those people in this country leading the unilaterally, to dis, unilaterally disarm were actually puppets of the KGB, our enemy. Yeah, man, we just need to do the right thing. Let's just plant flowers and trees and get rid of the bomb. That was our enemy talking. That's your enemy talking. Your enemy wants you to unilaterally disarm. He has no intention of, of getting rid of his weapons, but he needs you to get rid of yours. And so how do we flip the script? How do we stop being the one being worn down? It's a four-letter word. P-R-A-Y. And friend, when prayer becomes a four-letter word, you got a problem. Yeah, well, I pray. No, you don't. I'm not talking about over your Cheerios. I'm not talking when you see the red lights in your rearview mirror. I'm talking about making it a priority to pray. You get up in the morning and make time for God, perhaps like you used to, but no longer do. You say, "Well, I'm too busy." No, what you're really saying is it's not a priority. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard is about the professor who had a big glass gallon jar and put it on the table. To his left, he had large rocks. The other side, he had a bucket full of sand, and then he had a pitcher of water. And he began to take the rocks and put them inside the jar and tell this, filled to the top with these rocks. 
And he asked the classic question, is there still room in this jar for anything else? He took this bucket of sand and began to pour it in among the rocks. Shake it, pour in some more sand. Sure enough, the sand goes all the way to the top. You could hardly see the rocks. He says, is it full now? They all knew where he was headed. He takes a pitcher of water, pours it onto the sand. And the water gets down in between all the grains of sand. And sure enough, he fills that jar all the way to the top. And then he says to the class, ask the question, what have we learned from this? Immediately, a hand shoots up in the air, calls on that young man. The young man says, it tells us that even though our agenda might seem full, there's still room for more. He said, no. The lesson is that unless you put the big things in first, there won't be room. Unless you put the big things in first, you'll never have room for them. Your prayer life, Christian, is one of the big things. It's how you got saved. It's how you stay saved. You want to flip the script? You tired of being worn out and worn down and worn out and worn down? Then flip the script. Get your tools and go to work. Stop making excuses and begin to lay hold of God again. Empty out the jar. (laughs) Rinse it out and then put the big things in first. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with some sand and some water, but the big things must have priority. And the reason why most Christians don't pray is because it's not a priority. Others because they're mad at God because they're worn down. And somehow the devil's convinced them it's God's fault. Turn the tables, repent of our disobedience, hit the reset button on our Christian walk, and begin to lay hold of God again. I'm going to tell you, it won't be easy. You know why? Because when we're prayerless, all our spiritual filters get clogged with gunk. That's why you have such a foul attitude. That's why we feel so unspiritual. That's why the future doesn't have an appealing glow to it. Because all our spiritual filters are just yucky. How do you clean them? You've got to get a hold of God. Even though you don't feel like praying, you've got to pray. You've got to repent. You've got to be in the crowd to God again. You've got to begin to exercise your spiritual authority. You've got to turn the tables. You've got to become the spiritual aggressor in the world again. Outreach. Outreach. Friend, we just don't outreach to try to win the world. We outreach because we can go on the offensive. We can be the spiritual aggressor. That's the point of outreach. It's not, we love to hear reports. Hey, so all these people got saved. Yeah, that's great. They don't always end up in church, but you know, we like the statistics. We feel better. We feel like we did something. But it's not just about numbers. It's about being the aggressor. What was happening yesterday, going around and, and preaching Jesus, sharing your testimony. You're being the spiritual aggressor. There might, might not have been a thousand conversions, but you know what? You felt really good afterwards. Why? Because you were the one with the hasp in your hand. You were the one going to town on the enemy instead of vice versa. Let me tell you something. Being the spiritual aggressor can be your best friend sometimes. Over the years, we've had pastors who've lost loved ones, especially losing a child. There can be nothing worse probably in this life than to feel the loss when you lose a child. And I've talked to these men, and one of the things I tell them is, you know what, brother, you're going to have to, you're going to anchor yourself in your responsibility. That's what's going to keep you grounded. You've got to get up tomorrow. You've got to pray. You've got to study. You've got to preach the word of God. You've got to meet people's needs, counsel. You've got to be God's instrument to help somebody else, and that will anchor you. It will end up saving you because there's something about being the spiritual aggressor 
you have to get busy. You got to get a hold of God and you got to get busy. Because in the end, it doesn't matter what the devil does. If we are the ones going on the offensive, we cannot lose. We doubt, we win, and there's no doubt about it. It says in verse 26, But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. We can't lose. The only hope the enemy have is has is shh, 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 shh. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Before I do anything else this morning, friend, you might be in our midst by the invitation of a friend or you heard about our service. We're so glad you're here. But you know what? You'd be honest with yourself. You know in your heart of hearts that God brought you here because you need him. God brought you here today because you know in your heart you need his forgiveness. He brought you here today to save you so that you could be born again. And as we're here this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, you say, you know what, Pastor Ray, I know that's me. And whatever God has for me, that's what I want. That's what I need. And I would like to give my heart to Christ today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, please just let your hand go up right where you're sitting. I'll see it. You just put it right down. Let your hand go up. You want God's forgiveness. You want God's grace. You want his deliverance. God bless you, sister. I see your hand. You can put it down. God bless you. I see that hand as well. Thank you. Appreciate these honest hearts. Who else would join these? You lift your hand also. You're realizing right now, you know what, God, if you're there and you really do know me, you really do love me, you can really save me, Lord, then I'm open. Let your hand go up right where you're sitting. I'll see it. You can put it right back down. What I'm talking about right now is not joining a church or a religion because that will never save your soul. Only the Savior can save your soul, and that's Christ, and he is real. That's why you feel what you feel right now as he speaks to your heart. Just let your hand go up. I'll see it. You can put it right back down. God's speaking to you right now. You've never been born again, never been saved, or maybe at one time you were saved. You know you were saved, but you're not living for God today. Maybe you got worn down. You put that poison in and it sunk in. And you feel so lost. But there's hope. There's hope in him. Let your hand go up right now. Just put it up. There's hope in Jesus Christ, friend, but there isn't hope anywhere else. Put your hand up. I'm waiting for you. If you raised your hand this morning, you really are sincere. Just lift your head and look at me just for a moment. you mean that, young lady? Ma'am, you meant that? You want to give your hearts to Christ? Could you just stand right where you are? Yeah, if you don't mind, just go ahead and stand. Amen. I appreciate your honest heart. Thank you. appreciate that. Could you just come and join me? We're going to just pray. Someone's going to join you right here. Just come on. This little one, she raised her hand also. She can come too. Come on. Thank you for coming. I need a sister to come right now. Thank you for coming, sister. I appreciate you, your heart. Could you just kneel right here at this altar and lead these in the sinner's prayer? While these are praying here this morning, maybe you're saying, you know what, I, that should have been me. Well, you need to come too. So I'm going to meet you right here. While these are praying here this morning, I'm talking to the people of God. Because here in this text, Daniel 7, God gives us an insight into the spirit of Antichrist. One day, the man Antichrist will be manifest in the world. And he'll be given for a short time dominion over the people of God. But that's then, not now. Now we have dominion. But the strategy is the same. Wear them down. Wear them down. Wear them down. Like fine grit sandpaper. Over and over and over. The heat, the irritation, the friction. We just get tired. And we even say, man, I just so worn down. You know what? we got to flip the script. Greater is he who is in you than he that's in the world. We know that in our hearts, in our minds. We know that. But we get so worn down, friend, that we forget about the big things. 
And it's really not complicated. It's actually simple. You stop praying. It's almost like an engine. All the oil drained out. Now it doesn't run clean anymore. It doesn't run cool anymore. It's just all friction until it burns out. And there's a place to get the oil, and that's at the throne of God. God's speaking to you, Christian, right where you are. You can get out of your seat now. Come to this altar and say, God, that's me. That gauge has been showing hot for a long time, and I need some oil right now. I feel so burned out. I feel so worn down. I get so tired of that sound of the sandpaper over and over and over against my mind, against my heart, against my body. And God says, I'm here to help. I'm here to flip the script. Some, you're here this morning, friend. God's saying, you better take that jar and empty it right now. You got all this sand in there, all this water, all this stuff that doesn't matter. Dump it all out. Just dump it out. I'll clean it out. And then let's put the big things in first. Righteousness is what I long for. You're at your seat. You can stand to your feet as we sing. Righteousness altar is open for everyone. what I seek. Righteousness, righteousness is what you want from me. altar now I want you to stand to your feet